Well, good morning, everybody. Why don't we go ahead and get started? I know we'll have folks um, filtering in as we begin, but um, we want to begin with a prayer. Last week, we prayed, I think it was last week, the prayer that's assigned for Christmas Day. No, two weeks ago. Anyway, today, we're gonna, I'm going to pray the prayer. It's, um, I know it was last week that we prayed the prayer for Christmas Day. Anyway, today is the Sunday, second Sunday after Christmas. Um, as we turn our attention on God the Son. So let's bow our heads in prayer. O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity, your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. That prayer focuses on the fact that the second person of the Trinity, who's going to be our focus for today, um, came and took on our nature, human nature. And we're going to talk about that and what that means for us um, today. Well, let me ask you all a question. Where is God taking you? Where is God taking you? Now, I can't answer that question specifically. Um, I don't know, John, if you'll be with your company forever and ever. Um, you know, if you, Jeff and Catherine, y'all going to be, you know, uh, dentists forever. And I don't know. And I don't know where you're going to live. I don't know uh, who God's going to put into your life. I don't know the specifics, but in terms of the general answer to that question, where is God taking you, um, is spiritually the Holy Spirit is working in your life to take you, turn you into the image of his son, Jesus. That is where God is taking you all of us. And so really, that's what this question is about. What's the connection between these two questions? Who is Jesus? Who am I? Well, who is Jesus is who you are becoming. That's the connection. That's the connection. So the more that you learn about Jesus, the more you learn about where the Holy Spirit's taking you. And so that's going to be our focus today. Who is the second person of the Trinity? Who is the pattern for the Holy Spirit um, for you. Well, let's review. Last week, we wrapped up our talk on belief in God the Father. We talked about the fact that he is creator, ruler, and father. And we talked about um, a couple of challenging areas in terms of our Christian belief and modern culture. We talked about the relationship between science and faith. We also talked about the fatherhood of God, how God is fatherly toward everyone, Um, But he is only father to those who have been adopted through faith in Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we we pressed into this idea of the fatherhood of God and talked about how our understanding of who God is is distinct from every other religion in that God, as he is revealed in the Bible, is someone who invites us into a relationship whereby we call him father, Abba, daddy, God. And again, that sets us apart from every other world religion. Well, today we're going to talk about God the Son, and our topic is going to fall into two categories. We're going to talk about the person of Christ, that is who he is, and then the work of Christ, what he has done. We're only going to get to that first topic today, and then we'll cover the work of Christ next week when we get back together again. Let's return to the creeds. Um, In both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, the second section here that I have in blue deals with God the Son. 
And in both cases, in both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, that second section is the longest. Anybody want to hazard a guess as to why that might be? Why would the second section of the creed be the longest? What's the heart of Christianity? Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of Christianity. That's what we talked about the first day, right? So if the heart of Christianity is the person of Jesus, then I I suppose it shouldn't surprise us that the second section of the creed, which deals with God the Son, would be the longest. So that would be one reason. Another reason is that very early on in the life of the church, people had questions about this Jesus, who he is, what he's come to do. And so the creeds were the church's way of responding to those questions. To say, this is who he is. This is what he has come to do. And the creeds address both of that. They, 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 they address both the identity of Jesus, who he is, and they also address the work of Jesus, what he has come to do. Well, let's press into that. Who is this Jesus? Um, the first thing that we want to affirm is that Jesus was fully human. This is a painting of Jesus when he was a a young boy there in the temple. And the Apostles' Creed states um, this, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary. So just like us, Jesus had to grow up. He was born of a human mother. He was truly and fully human. In fact, as we read in the gospel according to Luke, Jesus grew in in wisdom. He had a human body which felt pain and thirst. Ministry wore him out. He slept, he ate, he went to the bathroom. Now, talking about uh, like this about Jesus can sometimes make us maybe feel a little bit uncomfortable. But it's vitally important that we understand this. Jesus experienced everything that you and I experience, including death. He had human emotions. He felt love. When his friend Lazarus died, he wept. He felt joy, anger, compassion for those who hurt. He sought solitude to pray. Now, why am I emphasizing this? Well, I'm emphasizing this, first of all, because it's true. It's what God's word tells us about Jesus But I'm also pressing into this because as God's word explains, only a human sacrifice could satisfy the debt of human sin. Now, this is a heavy theological concept that only a human sacrifice could satisfy the debt of human sin. But I would explain it with this, perhaps this little analogy. When I was in college, I, I play guitar. I'm not that great. I'm okay. But I like to, you know, play music and played in coffee shops and that sort of thing. So I had the idea that I was in a fraternity. It was an eating house. So I thought, well, I'll just give a little concert for, for my brothers, you know, during dinner. So I gave a little concert. It was fine. And um, I went to take a break, put my guitar down. And a fraternity brother said, hey, do you mind if I play your guitar? Now, those of you who play an instrument, especially a, an intimate instrument like the guitar, you know, that you hold, it, it, you can begin to feel very possessive of that thing. But I was um, in a time in my Christian life where I really was sensing that as a Christian, I needed to, to hold physical things lightly, including this guitar, which was so precious to me. 
So I said, sure, but yeah, you can play it. So I went into the kitchen to get a glass of water, kind of get refreshed, and I heard this bam, this crash. And I looked out of the kitchen, my water in hand, I looked across the fraternity house, and I could see my fraternity brother and this look on his face. In one hand was the headstock of the guitar, and there was a rainbow of strings, and then the other part of the guitar. It had fallen and broken. Now, only a new guitar was going to make that problem right. And somebody had to pay for it. Somebody. As it turns out, my fraternity brother was broke, so that someone was me. <laughs> but only a new guitar was going to make it right. Well, likewise, the cost of human sin is death. Somebody's got to pay the price. And that someone was God himself, who was born as a human so that he might have a human life to offer in place of ours. Hebrews, uh, the letter to the Hebrews puts it this way, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body, there it is, of Jesus Christ, once for all time. So you are all are the recipients of that gift. You need to understand what the nature of that gift is, what it costs God. And furthermore, when you and I go through the struggles of this life, it can bring us incredible comfort to know that God himself experienced all the pain of this world firsthand. The British author and poet Dorothy Sayers, she put it so beautifully when she wrote this. She said, for whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. So Jesus was fully man. Now, the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin, it generally raises three questions. First of all, what does that mean, that term, the virgin birth? Second of all, did it really happen? And third of all, does it really matter? As for what that phrase, virgin birth, means, that, that, that phrase is actually a little bit of a, a misnomer. The birth of Jesus was completely normal. If we were talking about the birth of Jesus to seventh graders, they would get all squeamish because it was just a regular human birth. So the birth was normal. It's the conception that was abnormal and supernatural. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit while his mother Mary remained a virgin. So that's what the phrase virgin birth actually is talking about, the, the conception of our Lord. Well, that's what the phrase means, but did it really happen? 
Well, both the Gospels according to Matthew and the Gospel according to Luke both give a sober account, a witness, that the virgin birth took place. And in fact, they do it from two different perspectives. Matthew gives us the the witness of Joseph, and Luke gives us the witness of Mary. And it's clear that both authors intended to record history, not convey some pious myth. Their witness is that it happened. So then we might well ask, okay, well, that's what it means. We have independent testimony that it happened. Does it really matter? And truth be told, the apostles, as they were beginning to tell people about Jesus, they didn't really rely on the virgin birth to say, well, this proves that he was um, of God. I mean, they didn't use that as part of their proof. Really, it would almost be better to argue the reverse. Because Jesus was the Son of God, we should not be surprised that he entered into the world in, in a supernatural kind of way. So that's the virgin birth. Questions about the virgin birth? Okay. Well, if you've got questions, you can raise your hand um, or you can hold them to the end. Let's talk now then about the deity of Jesus. This is a picture, a painting of the transfiguration when Jesus took his disciples, just three of his disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, up onto the mountaintop where he was transfigured before them. This was really the, 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 the clearest glimpse that the apostles had of his divinity there on the mountaintop. The Apostles' Creed refers to Jesus as God's only Son, our Lord. The Nicene Creed adds that Jesus is the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. The Athanasian Creed, whoa, pull the needle off the record, Athanasian Creed, who's ever heard of that? I know about the Apostles' Creed, I know about the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. Yes, my friends, there is a third creed that the church um, upholds as, as speaking the truth about what we know to be true about God. The Athanasian Creed, which you can actually find in your little foundations field guide near the back on page 864, we were too cheap to provide you all with the magnifying glass that you'll need to read it, but it is there. Those of you who have young eyes can read it. I, I can barely read it. But the Athanasian Creed makes this important distinction that Jesus was not made nor created, but begotten. Now, what is this begotten stuff all about? What, what is that supposed to, to refer to? Well, understanding what the creed is getting at, we need to distinguish between the meaning of those three words, made, created, begotten. Made talks about when when we create something out of some stuff. So I can take paper, fold it, turn it into origami. I can take bricks and use them to build a building. You start with stuff and you make something. Made. We create things out of nothing. What, what, is, what am I talking about? Well, I could create a poem. I didn't start with any stuff. Or I could create an idea or a concept. All those, I'm not starting with some material. It, it's, it comes out of the mind. So we create things out of, without some physical raw material. 
but we can only beget children out of ourselves. Okay? That is why when a child is conceived, although a mother and father obviously play a role in beginning that process, they do not create the child. Furthermore, they don't own the child. Um, when, when we were expecting our first child, we didn't you know, say, well, well, her hair color is going to be this. She's going to have this kind of temperament. She's going to have these kind of... We didn't, we didn't do that. We didn't make her. In fact, I was such a stickler for this. Um, Ellen would sometimes say when she was expecting our first child, you know, my body is making this baby. I say, it's not making that baby. It's begetting that baby. <laughs> but do you understand the distinction between the two? So begetting has to do with, with uh, something that, that is of us. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You know, people say, wow, your daughter is a spitting image of, of your wife. Now, again, Ellen didn't make her that way. She begot her. Well, the Nicene Creed explains that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. That is, God the Son has existed for all time. Okay, this is kind of mind-blowing. Um, this is the kind of thing that you would maybe on your freshman dorm sit around and just ponder late at night. Eternally begotten, what does that mean? But he has always existed. Which means that the birth of Jesus is not the beginning of the Son of God. It's just the moment in time when he came down to earth, was born of a human mother to walk among us for about 30 years or so. As the Creed explains, the Son is God from God. He is of one being with the Father. But that in the fullness of time, the second person of the Trinity became incarnate in the Virgin Mary and was made man. That, that's the creed's way of saying that he is both God and man simultaneously. Now, I realize that for some of us here this morning, you might be saying, okay, Andrew, this is you know, kind of some heavy theological stuff, but I mean, who cares at the end of the day? I mean, uh, what does this matter? What difference does it make that Jesus was both God and man? What does this have to do with me? And I'll say it can be easy to kind of get lost in all this, but hang with me. Because in order to understand what Jesus did, which we're going to talk about next week, we first have to understand who he is. The fact that he is both God and man has everything to do with what he accomplished for us. Again, stay tuned for next week on that. Okay, so we're kind of laying the groundwork of our understanding of who he is. Now, others might be wondering, okay, well, all right, I'll, I'll wait for next week. But, but really, can, can, it, can this stuff be trusted? I mean, uh, isn't this just, a, again, sort of a pious myth that some early Christians made up? And to those of you who are skeptical, I would say this. Consider first the things that Jesus said. Jesus called God the Father and himself the Son in absolute terms indicating that they had a unique relationship between the two of them. I and the Father are one. Furthermore, Jesus dared to say that he had come to inaugurate the long-expected kingdom of God after he read from the prophet Isaiah in the synagogue. He said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
He claimed that people can only enter the kingdom by responding to his call. When he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus referred to himself as the fulfillment of all prophecy, saying that the scriptures bore witness to him. He called himself the light of the world, and he presumed to forgive people's sins, which only God can do. In fact, it was that particular claim, the, the, um, that he had the right to forgive sins, that's what caused his contemporaries to put him on trial for blasphemy, because they understood full well, only God can forgive sins. You can't forgive sins, Jesus. And to top it all off, Jesus said that he would return at the end of time to judge the world. Now, how do we explain all of these claims? Was Jesus crazy? Was he some kind of megalomaniac, some sort of narcissist? But here's the thing. If Jesus suffered from psychosis, we would expect, along with all this this, uh, self-centered talk, we would expect some self-centered behavior. Those of you who are my age and older, you will remember uh, David Koresh, who started the Branch Davidians, a cult in Texas. Um, Some of you will have read about Jim Jones, who started Jonestown. All of those cult leaders are both self-centered in their talk, but they also organize their cults to serve themselves. And yet all of Jesus' actions were the opposite. They were completely selfless. He put on a servant's apron to wash the apostles' feet, humiliating. He made no attempt to resist when he was mocked, flogged, and spat upon and crucified. He even prayed that God would forgive them for doing that. So we have here this extraordinary paradox. Jesus is absolutely self-centered in his words, but he is absolutely selfless in his actions. How do we resolve this paradox? Friends, we resolve it with the witness of the word of God, that Jesus is, in fact, the son of God, who, while being worthy of all praise, came to be our servant. And we add to all this, of course, the resurrection. The disappearance of the body has never been explained away. And we have as well the reappearance of our Lord. The apostles all claim to have seen him at several times in several places. And let's remember that the apostles, um, Jesus, well, the apostles and, and even many of the disciples, I mean, these are tough fishermen. These are not the sorts of, uh, of persons to be um, given to fits of fancy. In fact, when the women who had witnessed the risen Lord, when they came to the apostles and said, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord, the apostles didn't even believe them. It was not until they had a firsthand eyewitness encounter with Jesus themselves that they said, he is alive. He has been raised from the dead. Then their skepticism was overcome. Furthermore, the only way to explain the disciples' behavior after the resurrection is to acknowledge that they saw something miraculous. That is, if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, you would expect all of the Christians to be disbanded, to to run for the hills. I mean, after all, what they'd done to their, their master, they could certainly expect to be done to them if they were his followers. But what do we read? They, they, they came out of hiding. They confronted the Jewish authorities. They said, Jesus is alive. They boldly proclaimed him, his resurrection, even willing, being willing to, to risk imprisonment and death. 
Nothing can account for that kind of behavior unless they believe that they had seen something. To put it bluntly, people don't die for something that they know is a lie. They'll die for something that's true, but people don't die for a lie. So let's recap. Who is Jesus? He is the Son of God and the Son of Mary, being both human and divine. In the words of the Athanasian Creed, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. God of the substance of the Father, begotten before all worlds. And man of the substance of his mother, Mary, born in the world, perfect God and perfect man. Article 2 of the 39 articles, remember several weeks ago, we looked back... um, there in your field guide at some other fine print at some of the articles, 39 articles of religion, and Article 2 puts it this way, that Jesus has two whole and perfect natures, that is to say the Godhead and the manhood, were joined together in one person, never to be divided, whereof is one Christ, very God and very man. So that is the person of Christ. You know, it's a lot of heavy stuff there, but questions about that. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these, your sons and daughters. Thank you for this time that we've had together. And we thank you for the gift of your son who came to be born among us to take our nature upon him that he might have a perfect life to offer in exchange for ours on the cross. Lord, we thank you for those many persons, parents, grandparents, godmother, um, friends and so on who have had a positive influence on us. And in particular, Lord, I thank you for those who have opened our eyes to see you and to catch a glimpse of of what you are like and of your call in our lives. And I pray, Lord God, that you would give us the grace to recognize those times when we might um, have a positive influence on others and that we might in some way, whether it be through word or deed, testify to who you are and who you've called us to be. So bless these, your sons and daughters. Bring us back safely, we pray. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you all. Great to be with you. And I'll see you all next week.